This is That Marketing Podcast. Made by marketers for marketers. Welcome to another edition of That Marketing Podcast, where we are once again talking about purchased data. Our previous episode on this topic with John Mitchison of the DMA was quite broad in scope. So this time we've decided to take a much more specific look into it. Freeman Clark are a spotless customer who make particularly heavy use of purchase data. And their head of marketing, Gemma Amund, joins myself and Spotler's own Simon Moss to talk about why they use purchase data, how they do it, and what you need to take into account if you go down this path yourself. I hope you enjoy. As a marketeer, one of our many tasks is to generate leads. There are a number of ways of doing this through inbound methods like SEO and PPC, but we also have outbound methods available to us like emailing purchase data. Spotler is one of the only marketing platforms to allow you to send emails to purchase data. And our guest today is one of our lovely customers, Gemma, who's the head of marketing at Freeman Clark, and she's here to join us and discuss all things purchase data related. Welcome, Gemma. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Hi, Simon. So we're here to talk about data. And I guess the first question that I have for you is um, why, why do you use purchase data? Uh, what benefits do you get out of it and what reasons do you have behind it? So we are, well, Freeman Clark are a sort of a quite unique service. Um, we provide experienced board level IT directors, CIOs and CTOs. But our model's different in that it's we're on a part-time or fractional basis. So because it's so unique, people don't often necessarily know what to search for or would, would ordinarily know that our service is available. So we really do need to go out and be able to explain that offering to them. So to do that, we obviously purchase data um, so we can spread the message and build awareness. And is it something you've, you mentioned at Freeman Clark you've been doing? Have you been purchasing data and using that as a method of um, a kind of a marketing tactic for previous roles or has it mainly been at Freeman Clark? It's mainly been it's mainly been at Freeman Clark. When I joined the business four and a half years ago, um, our main marketing activity was just outbound email marketing. Um, where we were buying very small lists uh, on sort of a monthly basis. Um, our model has changed a lot more now and we've become a lot more targeted in the way that we do that. And so working with data houses, you have the ability now to be more focused and targeted on the people, the industries, uh, revenue turnover that you're homing in on so that you can best present your offering to people that it's most suitable for. And so that's an interesting one. So is it a case of the when, when you're doing your email uh, programs, what, what's your end goal of it? Because obviously you're sending select data. Are you working on kind of getting leads for your sales team? Or you mentioned that you do placements into industry as such. Is, is, is the goal just to get in contact with those um, professionals to try and get them placed into different companies? Yes, no, absolutely. So um, again, because our, you know, we don't necessarily, we don't sell widgets. We don't sell us, you know, a small priced product, for example, we're selling a, a service, which is quite an investment. So a lot of it is about educating the, the recipient of our emails about exactly who we are, what we do, and that, and that takes time. So we're having an ongoing uh, communication with the people that, you know, that we've we sort of bought this, this data for. So at first of all, it's about building awareness of the Freeman Clark brand. And then by adding value, we always provide content and useful information in terms of, the, you know, the, the benefits that we can provide and our experience. 
but a lot of the content that we're writing is specifically for chief execs of mid-market businesses. So, you know, often they might not need our service there and then. So we need to be able to have an ongoing communication, as I said, for it could be three months, six months, could even be a year where we're seeing people are engaging with our information, they're learning more about us, we're building our credibility and, and, we're, and we're, we're able to build trust with um, who we're talking to. And at the point that they realise they might need our service is when typically they would respond. So you have to be in it for the long game, really. You don't, I don't expect to buy data and then to suddenly have a response the following week after I've spoken to them once. It's very much about building a communication plan with that data so that you can you can deliver value and you can make sure they're well informed about the benefits that you can provide okay and once you sort of once you've got hold of that data how do you go about managing it one of the things that comes up uh, when we talk to people about it is sort of fear or bad experience of duplicates popping up how do you manage that and make sure that's not a problem for you We've certainly had our measure of issues and frustrations, there's no doubt. Um, we've now got a very rich database as a result of acquiring data in a number of different ways. It's not just purchase data. I think when you're dealing with purchase data, it is often more complicated than you think, and it does take a lot more time. You need to be really clear on what your objectives are and what you're trying to get out of that data. And so you also need to fully understand your own database. It's often the case that the way you have your data structured in your database is that you've got small pockets of different types of people in there, whether it's networks or partners that you work with, you might not necessarily market to, but um, they could they could potentially look like a you know a perfect profile from a from a job title perspective. Or indeed you might have your suspects or prospects that your sales team are already talking to. So in order to limit the instance of, of duplicates, you need to make sure that all of those different pots of people are presented to your data house so that they can run a, a dedupe against them. So you're not then purchasing back the data that already exists. You know, and much of it is just about you know, reducing the, the time wasting exercise that's taken place on both the data house's side and on your side. And as I said, it's it's been very complicated at times, but I think now we've got a very clear process that we undertake before we engage with it with a data house and my second piece is there is that you need to be really careful that you're being gdpr compliant you know you are holding potentially sensitive data and so if you're going to share the data that's in your database with a uh, with a supplier then you need to make sure there's a contract in place between yourselves and the data house to make sure that once the dedupe has been run that data that you shared has indeed been deleted you have, an, you have an obligation and a duty to make sure that's all carefully managed. That's, that's really that's really useful uh, information, actually, because yeah, if, you, if, you, if you're just going to share a, a list of yours, you definitely want to make sure that you've got some kind of NDA or agreement, as you're saying, with the, with the data. Yeah, Very, absolutely. You, well, you talked about kind of a legal thing there, so uh, it'll be interesting to get your input on, uh, obviously, legality of sharing data, but I assume when you purchase data, you're processing under legitimate interest to email rather than consent? That's correct, yes, legitimate interest indeed. So obviously, we do also acquire data from people visiting our website and opting in to receive our fortnightly newsletters, for example. Uh, all, all purchase data that we do go out and get is based on legitimate interest. So we are very clear about the target market that would be able to benefit from our businesses, and we don't go beyond that. And with those different data pots that you mentioned, do you send different campaigns to purchase data compared to your subscribers? Or do you, if you were to buy data, do you have kind of a, a method about or a campaign structure that says 
it's going to go down this funnel compared to this data that I got from an event that's going to go down this funnel, for example. Do you have any secrets about getting that data to engage? No, not in terms of if I'm comparing purchase data to data we've acquired elsewhere. I think, you know, we, we tend to segment our data. You know, once it comes into the database, it, it's essentially in one pop. What we will do then is we will segment it based on a records level of engagement. So that engagement might look like high levels of activity on our website, for example, or mm. people requesting further information on a specific subject matter. So based on someone's activity, we're able to create specific nurture campaigns to acknowledge what they've been doing or what they've been engaging with to further add value that's timely and relevant. Because you're purchasing data, you're already buying that data under a set kind of criteria. So therefore, uh, we, we use it, well, I guess we use the terms in the industry of called personas, but you kind of already know what you're going to send to that set of data, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Uh, so you, so no matter where you get it from, where if it was like you're saying, um, somebody subscribing, meeting at event or data purchase, you've already got kind of comms based around either, I guess, a job title or function of, a, of an individual? Correct, yes. So we would always uh, look to try and communicate with the chief exec of an organisation. Um, so our content is specifically very business focused and, and written at a strategic level as opposed to very technical. So we're not writing for the tech teams, we're writing for the chief exec to be able to demonstrate how having one of our guys on their on their leadership team can deliver business benefits and, and growth through aligning a technology strategy with a, with a business strategy. So yes, our, one of our criteria would be a job description or sorry, job title. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you said that Freeman Clark's business model is quite different from else who's likely to be sort of out there or listening. With that in mind, what kind of experience have you had with specific providers? Are there any that you found either particularly good or particularly bad that you can steer people either towards or away from? Do you know what? It, it really does vary. I think you do get to a stage where you, you know, you, you sweep the net far and wide to start with because, you know, initially it's about building your database and you want to try and get as many suitable and relevant contacts for you to be able to communicate with. But then you do, you, you start to get a feel of one source might have particularly high bounce rates, for example, or indeed just the engagement of working with that particular data provider could be more challenging or you're finding, you know, just general customer service can obviously be a huge turn off if you're, you're trying to get a job done and it just seems like you're pedaling uphill. So obviously bounce rate, ease of ease of working with that supplier is always a big factor. So we do have now sort of two or three preferred suppliers um, and we've worked with you guys as well, which has always been incredibly timely and the data has been great. So, you know, it, it's but it's a, a constant it's, it's something you never stop doing. So we're constantly buying, you know, data sort of two or three times a year. And when you're buying the data, you're then looking to cleanse, you know, existing hard bounces or people that have said they've left the company. It really is quite a, a complex process. Finding the right supplier that can work with you and understand your needs is, is great. So if you, if you get to a stage where you've got sort of one or two preferred suppliers, then you're in a good space, I'd say. Yeah. It's always nice for you to name drop us in there, Gemma. Thank you very much. I guess the, the interesting thing buying data, what we find, uh, we, we purchase data, is that we've kind of got a motto, which or I have anyway, which is um, all data is crap, so anything I get is a bonus. I guess, what, what do you expect from when you buy data? Because there's, the, the industry sort of out there says that 20% of data when you buy it is kind of rubbish straight away. So do you have different expectations from when you buy data to getting inbound traffic? Do you measure that data slightly differently at all when you come to reporting on it? 
No, that's a really interesting point. We haven't got as granular as to measuring the different types of responses by data source, um, so from inbound versus outbound, but from a, um, a data supplier perspective, as I said before, you know, you start to get a feel of what's crap, as you, as you put it, um, versus <laughs> what's acceptable. And I think the more you work with data and the more experience you have, you, you, you have your own perception of what you think is acceptable or good in terms of that initial hard bounce rate. You know, I would always build it into my negotiations that I would expect to be credited for any of them that have been hard bounced. If I've literally just bought that data, I expect it to at least land where it's meant to land. So I think that's something that I would always stress to do is to, is to, to build that into your negotiations when you're buying data. But, you know, you know, to my previous point, you have to be in for the long game. You have to remember that, you know, depending on what you're selling, whether it's a service or a product, it's about building brand awareness. And if somebody's not heard from you ever before, then you can't necessarily expect that data to convert just like that. It's about building credibility, adding value and gaining trust. So, you know, it's often the case that we see people engage with our communications for months and even years. But then one day they'll hit reply and say, I want a conversation. The so, interesting thing there is about, you mentioned building kind of trust and credibility. Do you send any particular things to new data to try and build that credibility? I mean, one thing that we look at doing is we, we try to have a look at Google and see what our top performing blogs are. And we'll try and send that to our personas, for example. Um, have you got any kind of tips that you might send something in particular to get people to engage or that kind of puts you on a good foot? with, with well, that data set yeah no that's that's an interesting point and i think we we probably used to do that when we were running our cyclical 90-day campaigns we would typically introduce introduce ourselves i've kind of come around to the way of thinking that most people's inboxes are swamped from one day to the next and you know the chances of them remembering you so vividly from your previous communication if they haven't engaged with you at that point then there's an element of, I don't necessarily think you have to go back to the beginning of explaining exactly who you are. It's just, I'm acknowledging that you're a chief exec. I'm acknowledging that you're this type of organization. Yeah. And I think that the, the information that I'm presenting to you in my email is going to be of interest and relevant to you. So to your point, Simon, picking your top performing content and adding that into your communication, I think is much more powerful than just simply saying to, to somebody that you've never spoken to before, you know, you know pleating bleating on about who you are and what you do because it's just it just ends up ends up being you're talking about me 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 and not really addressing the the person you're trying to communicate with yeah i think that's that's very valid in in that in that respect of trying to send whatever data it is whether it's purchased or you know subscribers sending them relevant useful content and trying to get them in engaged with that um because the other thing that you mentioned there which is really really useful is that as you're saying, you are fighting to get that attention in that inbox. So yeah. would you, I guess you recommend, and we're a big advocate of this, but not just sending one email. Don't get disheartened if they don't reply to that very first email. <laughs> you can't get upset. You have to grow You have to grow <laughs> thick skin, don't you? Absolutely. No, and a lot of our campaigns will be multi-part campaigns. So we would send a fortnightly newsletter, which is a one-off, but again, is either theme-based or is touching on something that's topical in the news, for example. But then all of our other tactical campaigns would typically be two or three parts to them. We've just ran a very comprehensive sector-specific nurture campaign, which had eight different 
elements to it, varying formats, which was great. And I think, you know, people are busy. So where your email might have landed and they might have just opened it but not really scanned it, by the time the afternoon's come, it, it's vanished. So you've then got another bite of the cherry by sending them something else the next week. As long as people aren't unsubscribing from your communications, I think it's then sitting in two camps, either not landing in their inbox or they, they don't mind receiving your information because it is of interest and it's relevant. It's just not timely right now. So to your point, absolutely send one, two, three. Just don't be irritating with it and always be adding value. How do you choose the, the topic for that initial email? I suppose with organic traffic that comes into your website, you've already got a snapshot of what they're interested in. But broad data, you don't have that. How do you go about choosing that content? I think the majority of the time it's working very closely with our sales team to understand the types of issues that they are faced with when they go into a sales meeting. So taking your understanding and experience from why people have engaged with you in the first place when we have a sales meeting and saying, right, well, majority of the time it's because they've got a problem, a real problem right now. And it's typically one of these five things. So, right, let's talk about what those five things look like in our, in our outbound email communications. And if you could be more specific to a certain sector, all the better. But it's about, I think, for us, demonstrating that we're problem solvers, whether that's, you know, I don't have a technical strategy or whether it's because my back end systems don't talk to each other or whether it's because I need some IT leadership in, in my, my business. Whatever it is, I think it's, it's making sure that you're talking to the, the guys on the front line and bringing those conversations into your comms. You, you mentioned the dreaded S word there, Gemma, uh, the, the sales Fail. team. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Work, working with the sales team or you could say trying to get those sales guys to actually make a phone call and do some work. Out of interest, uh, so the, the, when you purchase data, um, and if we stay on that topic, um, do you get the sales team involved with kind of cold calling of that data, any postal campaigns uh, at all? Do you, do you kind of do a, uh, what's the word in industry, an omni-channel approach um, when you've got data sets? It's, mainly, it's mostly email. We don't tend to... We don't tend to, we don't do any telemarketing or follow up with phone calls. A few of our, you know, often if we've got an indication that someone has been engaging with a specific campaign or content, and obviously we can do that through looking at our, our web analytics, then it may be appropriate to, to forward that information onto the sales team and say, look, you've got five different businesses here. This gentleman or this lady has engaged with all of the content. It might be a good opportunity for you to connect with them on LinkedIn, reach out to them and see if there's anything else we can help you with. But in actual fact, we've got other back end campaigns which are automated that also do that for us. Again, sort of trigger based campaigns. So um, we can capture those that way as well. In terms of using the purchase data for direct mail pieces, again, we've, we've sort of gone back around the houses and done a few traditional direct mail campaigns nestled in with some outbound emailing as well. With, with, to be honest with you, not huge amounts of success. Again, you know, it's suggesting that the time that we reach out to them and send them that postcard or that letter is the time that they need us. And quite often it's not. So for us, it's much more about talking to them regularly and which we can do so with our newsletters on a fortnightly basis and keeping our brand front of mind as and when they need us. And as I said, as long as they're not unsubscribing from our communications, we can either make the assumption that they're happy to receive our comms because they're helpful, or maybe they're not landing in their inbox, which is another, which is the <laughs> other sort of uh, quandary and big question mark that sits all, okay, over that, all of that's, our heads. That's a podcast for another day, deliverability. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Let's podcast. not get on to that one. <laughs> 
the 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 we've tried some um postal campaigns which i think might be good for for subscribers listening on the podcast to, to let them know so you, you mentioned that you didn't have great success with postal ones um we've been trying somewhere we will post out a letter saying that we'll uh, if you have a meeting with us we'll bring a free um ipad we'll bring an ipad with us oh um, okay. or, so, just, or just to look at yeah no well yeah, you can, <laughs> we'll bring it with us just look at it and then we'll give it to you so the, the kind of the ones is that kind of what's in it for me again a bit like the email campaigns where you're trying to yeah. give really useful content we found if you can find if you're doing postal campaigns that can be quite compelling to give something away for free because obviously we're only going to be posting it to somebody that we want to have a conversation with anyway um we shouldn't be posting it to you know bob down the road because otherwise we've not done our marketing very well <laughs> the segmentation and the targeting's gone all wrong um but postal uh, yeah. campaigns along those lines have worked quite well for us if anybody wants to try those type of things interesting point there just on that and I suppose it's got to be something that's relevant to the, to the actual you know I, I don't necessarily be suitable to send to the chief exec of a sort of a 50 million pound business it's, it's, it's right, finding that right finding that right something isn't it that's going to be of value to them it really yeah it really is we, we, we've definitely found that marketeers love an iPad uh sales people love love uh, brown bags of cash I know <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I'm happy to accept. I'm happy to accept it. And I've got a problem. You've changed your job title to a salesperson now. No, uh, that is called bribery, and we don't endorse it. Um, uh, the, nice so, yeah, indeed. No, it, it's always it, it's it's always good trying to find out which content or which offers peak individual persona interests. Yes. Um, and from a postal point of view, that's worked well for us. From a an email point of view, uh, when we buy data and we send campaigns we we've got a lovely term for it which is we try to send an injection of love um, oh. but what what we mean by that is a bit what you're talking about is we we try to send campaigns that are relevant and useful to the individual so as, as a marketeer we might send you the top performing subject lines we found this week for example yes. and then two days down the line we might send you a um a guide on how to do split testing so we have a we've got a process in place that when we have what we call net new contacts they'll go through a, a two-week series of emails you, you mentioned nurture programs earlier but it's that same scenario of you've now got a, a piece of data um whether someone's form filled or you've purchased it you, you want to make sure you do something to it and try and get the most out of it Simon, I was just going to ask you on your previous point, when you're looking to communicate with somebody for the very first time, if, say it's purchase data, are, do you test your call to actions? So if it's, as you say, adding value by sending them an introductory piece of content, is it very much just here's the content, consume it, thank you very much, lovely to meet you, or, or do you always from the first communication present them with a very strong, compelling call to action? So regarding the call to action, Gemma, that's a very valid point. So we make sure we never use anything like click here or or download here. We, we always make sure when we talk about compelling call to action, it'll be like get your top five subject lines or download this brochure to help you get more leads. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. So 
we definitely test the call to action, but I like to think that we always try to have a compelling call to action, or at least one that isn't innocuous, like click here. We go we go down that road of the BuzzFeed of, you know, get your top five uh, subject lines or see how AI can help you get better click-through rates. Those kind of compelling call to actions, or at least topical call to actions, if that makes sense. But the other thing we also do is, the content we send out, generally the style of it is Outlook style. So it looks like somebody has sent you that email rather than a marketing email because you can spot those from a mile away. So we generally keep the format to an Outlook style email. And in that email or that injection of love series, we will have a, a kind of a structure or a play around. That first email that we send might be like you were saying, yeah, hi Gemma, here's a great blog on X. And then if we see you engaging with it, we might try and drop you down to send you a case study, if that makes yeah. sense. So you, you, yes. we're, we're trying to let you dictate what it is you receive when you engage. If you yes. don't engage, we're going to do a kind of drip campaign to you, which is we're going to try and send you something you might think is useful. And the, the it will all culminate in the, the, the email that goes out, which is uh, an email from a salesperson. We're in your area this week. We'd love to have a meeting with you because our sales director is always in everybody's area. Uh, I was gonna say, he's, he's got a very fast car and he's in it a lot. <laughs> you get an idea of the process, if that makes sense. We're, yeah. we're, trying, yeah. to, um, we're trying to send you useful content, but that doesn't always 100% of the time work. Because as you are saying, you're fighting against an inbox that has, I think the stats out there is 120 emails a day a B2B marketer gets. So you're, you're fighting for the attention anyway, and you might not always get there. So sometimes we'll try and change it up by testing the content. Mostly we'll change it up by just testing the subject line. You wouldn't believe how useful a email goes out without an actual subject line in it. It gets people to respond. As long as you've got, like you said earlier, you need to have a thick skin because uh, people will reply back and say, you just sent me an email about a subject line. But for me, that's brilliant because then I can be like, oh, Thank you for letting me know. Hopefully that uh, document we sent you was really useful and it can start a conversation. you got you got a guy called Seth Godding who talks about a purple cow talking about being remarkable. And yeah. basically he just means you need to stand out. And that's what we try to do in some of the emails before somebody even reads the content is trying to get them to open. It can be a, a task in itself. As you were saying, you've got to you've got to have a, a thick skin, but you've also got to have more than one bite of the cherry, especially in the purchase data realm. You know, they're, they're not expecting any emails from you and you're going to break into their inbox. Um, exactly. I think you have to be really so, careful about the way you do that. As you exactly. said, it's, you have to, yeah, you have to be non-intrusive, helpful, engaging, make it all about them and not you when you're first yeah. trying to not necessarily start a relationship, but when you're just at least trying to sort of gain um, access and acceptance into their inbox. It become, I think people become quite guarded and precious about their inbox because, as you said, we get so much day in, day out. Um, you really, it's very easy just to hit un unsubscribe or delete. You've got to, you've got to stand out from the crowd. Have yeah, you, you really there. do. And as you say, it's, we we couldn't recommend highly enough that that first email is value based, if that makes sense. And when I say value based, we we sometimes get a few customers like, well you know, we're sending sales emails, their value, we're telling them how we can help them. <laughs> what I mean by value base is what you were saying, which is, can I help you in your day-to-day -day job with some useful content to try and cement that usefulness or that trustworthiness? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, no, uh, absolutely. There's some really, really useful tips there actually on, on what to send to uh, a lot of cold data. 
I would all also say we, we probably every quarter we, we'll try and do a campaign to let's call it cold data or unengaged data where we will just do something completely random to see whether that, that email address is still alive. Um, okay. Yeah. So you, it might be, you it's know, like first that. person. Yeah. Well, so first person to reply will get a hundred pounds. <laughs> something completely <laughs> random because otherwise I'm, I'm going to go and delete that data at some point or buy it again. It's going to cost me a hundred pounds to buy the data again. So uh, giving away a hundred pounds might not be might not be a bad thing. But do you see what I mean? Just trying to get into it because at the moment you, you've got that data where I, I don't know about you, but we. We work on cold data gets, you know, roughly a 1% click-through rate, give or yeah. take. Industry average is, is around that as well. So let's just say I've bought a 1,000 contact records. The vast majority of those aren't going to engage in those email campaigns. No. So no, you've got to do something to try and get in front of them, haven't you? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Along the way. Um, there was one bit, Gemma, that you mentioned that I just wanted to go back to, and it was regarding the, the dreaded S-word, the, the sales team. You mentioned that you pass on your leads, and I know you guys use a CRM, um, and I think you use Dynamics. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Do yes. you pass the leads on to your sales team within Dynamics, or uh, do you do the old tried and trusted, here's a spreadsheet, and follow them up that way? So again, because we're we're selling a high value service, we're not getting five, ten leads coming through every day. So they're each handled very sort of personally. So if somebody responds positively to a marketing communication, we would forward that on to the RD and you know it shows them sort of the email stream, what they've received, what they have received from marketing, their response. And then we would qualify those in dynamics on behalf of the RD and hand it over to them. So that sits with them to manage in the CRM system. And obviously the, the way we then deal with that, the way it's qualified means that it, it's no longer up to be pulled into any other marketing communications for that period or certainly sales messages for that period. But uh, yeah, it's again, it's process and sometimes things fall through the gaps. But on the whole, because, you know, so we're not getting hundreds of leads every day, you know, it, it's just managed quite simply. It's useful to see that uh, purchase data actually generates you, you some leads and leads for the sales team. So for us at Freeman Clark, it, there's no doubt that purchase data has a place for us. As I said at, at the beginning, because we provide such a unique service, there's you know there's an awful lot of our market that just simply wouldn't know we exist and what we do. So it's imperative that we have the opportunity to be able to tell people what it is. So we've got people coming into the website and signing up to our business insights and we're acquiring data in a very engaged manner, then that is gold dust for us. But 100% to be able to buy data where we can reach out to our target market and communicate our offering is absolutely part of our strategy. Excellent. So Gemma, there's a really interesting bit of when you purchase data um, from data brokers, do you buy data on a unlimited usage or do you buy it on a, a 12 month usage? I know some providers give you update files or there are some providers that allow you to just purchase data and then it's yours, if that makes sense. How do you go about finding that, that data that, that you want? I think we I think we've been finding our feet with that since GDPR's kicked in. I'd say that we've bought some data which has both been unlimited and has had a 12-month license on it. One thing I will say, and again it just depends what the cost variance is, is that if you do buy it on a 12-month license, what I have been doing is is then saying, right, well, let's look at what you think I owe you for another 12 months. I'm gonna look at the data now you're about to recharge me for and see whether or not it's actually been engaging in any of our content. 
And if it hasn't even opened, clicked, then often I'll say, well, let's leave those guys for now and only just relicense those that have actually engaged with the uh, communications we've been sending. Um, okay. I mean, to be honest with you, it's it's kind of pennies. I don't think there's a huge amount in it. But then when your database is growing and you've got 50,000 plus people in it, then the, the numbers do start to stack up. Yeah, it makes a difference, doesn't it? I guess then uh, a tip for when you're doing that is making sure that you tag that data when you load it into your CRM or into your ESP, just so right. you, you actually find it after the 12 months is up to delete it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So any data that we import into our CRM system would have a data source flag in, uh, in it, which would have the, the actual name of the broker, as you say, or and the, the date that it was uh, imported as well. One thing that if if you read about purchasing data, one of the things that come up is uh, obviously sending to, to to cold data, purchase data can be a bit tricky and it might have deliverability issues. Do you do anything around changing your domains that, that you use to sending the purchase data or any kind of methods to make sure that you don't get caught out with any honey trap or any bad data? Because as I said, if you take the 12 month license scenario, they normally seed that data and sometimes it can get you blacklisted or as you're saying they can come back and knock on your door for more money if you're using the data outside of the agreement do you manage that in any way um, from a deliverability point of view no to be honest with you not as a result of buying new purchase data we have in the past changed our domain name again for the question around deliverability but not as a direct action from buying purchase data, because I mean, we'd be, we'd be doing it two, three times a year if that was the case. And it's just not something we've looked into, into that much detail, to be honest with you. The interesting point there that you mentioned is that you have changed domains and possibly IP addresses. So it's one thing that yes. we do from our own sending. We have about four or five domains, and one of those domains we use for cold data for that particular purpose in that we never recommend just having one domain to send from in case you actually ruin it, if that makes sense. So therefore your yep, customers yep, are going to be ruined. So um, that, that's a really, really useful and valid point for anybody that is sending to purchase data to make sure that you've got at least two domains that you're sending from in case you get caught out with some bad data along the way. So, so that's a great tip there. So Gemma, one useful thing that I think our listeners would um, like to know is, do you have a criteria in place that enables you to confidently process and target the data that you buy under legitimate interest? Yes, absolutely. And again, this is something we took very, very seriously and continue to do so now. Um, so in order to meet that criteria, we ensure that we are communicating and targeting chief executive or decision makers of businesses which firmly sit in a revenue bracket but ambitious growing businesses that would afford and would benefit from our services so that's businesses that sit within five to seven million pound turnover up to a hundred million pound turnover we work across a number of different sectors so it's not necessarily about the sectors but it's certainly about the revenue the regions that we are able to service and the actual decision maker in the business as well and on top of that as well i think it's it's really important whenever you're handling data whether it's purchased or acquired elsewhere that you've got a really prompt and reactive response to people that no longer want to hear from you you know you have to be respectful um, and we're always incredibly apologetic if we feel like we might have offended somebody and I'd just like to say we've got an incredibly low unsubscribe rate and we very very rarely get responses where people have been 
really miffed by us contacting them. But even so, we have a very strict process. We have a separate email address that we forward that on to to make sure that it is managed, that the person is deleted accurately in both our marketing automation platform and our CRM system. And just the, the bare basics of their details still have to remain in order that you don't rebuy that data again. And we make that very clear. So it's stripping out any personal information about them, but we just have to maintain an, an, an email address. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point there in that we're the same as you. We process our data under legitimate interest and we use our personas to justify that, making sure we've got job titles and got the, the ICO balancing test uh, document that we, we've done as well. And as you say, our, our product, as, as you know, you're a customer, allows you to do your subject access request and your right to be forgotten. So making sure that yes. your, yes. your ESP that you're using has has those um, capabilities is is really useful as well. All right. I think that's a, a really good point to leave. I think we've covered all the essentials there for people that are nervous about about purchase data or even for people that are, are already using it and just need some some tips and some reassurance of how how the rest of the world's handling it. So Gemma, thank you. Thank you very much again for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yes, thank you, Gemma. Have a good day. Take care.